Thank you, music team, young and old, joining for leading us. Uh, I want to invite you to join me in Colossians. I'm always excited as we start a new book and we get that blessing today as we turn to um, to the book of Colossians. But as we turn there, it is important for us to to be reminded that this book is in fact a letter. And, and that truth sets somewhat of a framework for us as we think about how we approach Colossians. Um, we know certain things about letters, right? We know that letters are written uh, by people, by a person. And... In the opening verse of this letter, we find that it is a letter written by Paul, but Paul describes himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus. He is a messenger of Christ Jesus. He is the mouthpiece of Christ Jesus. So Christ Jesus is the author of this letter. Just as letters are written by person they are written to a people. This letter is written to uh, the church at Colossae. But again, go back to the true author. This is the letter of Jesus Christ. It is uh, by God's will, a portion of the canon of holy scripture. So this is not merely a letter for the church in Colossae, or as we will find at the end of the letter, to be read also to the Laodiceans, but it is a letter for Christ's church. This letter is written to us. And so we need to understand its meaning to us. Letters are written by a person. Letters are written to a people, but letters also have a purpose. The purpose of this letter to the Colossians is is spelled out for us further as we go through this letter, but there appears to have been some form of false teaching. We'll get into that more as we go, but as Paul speaks into that false teaching, he meets it with Jesus. And he points the people of Colossae to the, the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ above all. That is the truth that we will see as we go on page after page of this letter. And finally, letters have a form. And Paul's letters are no different. And so the form that we find here that we'll explore today is this thanksgiving that Paul offers for the people to whom he's writing. As we open this text, we're going to read Colossians 1, verses 1 through 8. Let me turn to the Lord in prayer, asking His blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Would you bow with me? Father, As we come to this text, we pray that you would give us the the blessing, the presence of your Spirit. Teach us. Give us hearts to grasp this truth and be transformed by it, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. 
because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. What are you thankful for? I know that this is October, and in November we generally think more about thankfulness and thanksgiving, but what are you thankful for? I'm guessing when I ask you that question, I hope, uh, something pops into your mind. And while there may not have been a long logical progression as to why that, uh, that object of your thankfulness popped into your mind, I'm guessing that what you're thankful for has some connection to the circumstances you find yourself in. This week on Wednesday morning, Michael and MK and I were gathered to plan for worship as we do each and every week. But before we could, before we could get into the, the, the business before us, MK just had to share with us her excitement from the night before. <laughs> you see, the night before, Tuesday night, MK in 2020, mind you, was able to go to a live concert. And she was so thankful that she had to just share it with us. Uh, <clears throat> her father had, um, had, had, had purchased a table at, at Avondale out at the outdoor concert venue. And, and she gathered with family and friends and they went to a Riley Green concert. Now, if you know MK like I know MK, she was so thankful for live music. And regardless of what you might personally think of Riley Green, if you even know who he is, uh, that's probably not the most typical concert that MK would have gone to. Uh, but she went because her circumstances of 2020 had, uh, had robbed her of the gift of live music. And because of those circumstances, the thing that she was most thankful for on Wednesday morning was the concert from the night before. It's true of us. What we're thankful for oftentimes is born out of the circumstances we find ourselves in. But see, here was the other thing as MK was describing for us this concert. As she described her thankfulness, there was just this hint of admonition. As she talked about going to this concert, there was this hint that, hey, Avondale, Keep doing the thing that I am most thankful for. Keep hosting live music. Isn't that also true of us? When we, when we acknowledge the thing that we are most thankful for, it's not only born out of our circumstances, but it is also this admonition that that thing we are most thankful for uh, might continue. You thought I was asking you a simple question. What are you thankful for? 
but wrapped up in that is much background truth. The same is true here in Colossians. As Paul offers thanksgiving for the church, his thanksgiving is born out of the circumstances found in that church, and it also bears with it an admonition for them to remain in the thing that he is most thankful for. So let's explore explore this, this declaration of thanksgiving. And as we do, we'll see from the very outset of this letter that, that, that Paul is engaging in the problem in Colossae. There is in that church a threat to truth. Now, as we continue over the coming weeks and months to unpack Colossians, we'll, we'll understand more about what this threat was in the church, but understand that it's not entirely clear Different theologians, different uh, commentators would speak to different nuances of it, but I believe that Colossians 2 verse 8 gives us the, maybe the clearest indication of what's going on in this church where, uh, where the word says, um, see, again the admonition, listen to the admonition, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. It seems that in Colossae, in uh, the culture and, and possibly creeping into the church, there was this blending that was taking place of uh, sort of this religious uh, tradition of this hyper-spirituality, maybe even angel worship of worldly wisdom of the philosophy of the ages, and all of that was kind of put in a blender and, and added to Christ. Now think about that for a minute. That mixture has a bit of a ring of truth. Jesus is in there. Religious tradition is in there. Spirituality is in there. The philosophy of the world is in there. And what we've got to come to see is that when you add to Jesus or blend with Jesus, you lose Jesus. That the result of all of this blending is not a better truth, but no truth. We've already talked about Letters and letters being addressed to a people, and Paul is clearly addressing this letter to the church in Colossae, but it is also addressed to Christ Church PCA, and therefore it is addressed to me and it is addressed to you. And though this is a warm letter that beautifully, clearly points us to Jesus, along with the warmth comes a warning. And it's a warning of a particular danger that oftentimes the most dangerous teaching can come from within the church. One commentator described this danger as coming from teaching that is largely Christian but has been influenced by the spirit of the age even more than it knows. That's a scary thought. 
when we have a conviction of spirituality that owes more to the spirit of the age than to Jesus. Friends, I've spent a lot of time this week meditating on this passage and that truth. And as I have done so, I've I've wrestled with the temptations within my own heart to add to this word. I've tried to recognize the subtle ways in which it comes out. And I ask you to do the same. I ask you to think about the ways in which you have taken this Word and blended it with the wisdom of the world, whatever that might be for you. The politics of the world, whatever that might be for you. Spirituality, whatever that might mean. How we've blended it with the Word of Truth. Wrestle with that yourself, and along with me, let's repent of it. It is the threat to truth that Paul will continue to unpack for us in Colossians, but understand in this thanksgiving, he's not only recognizing the circumstances of this church, he is also celebrating the fact that though there is a threat to truth, they have grasped the word of truth. Remember, the thing that we are most thankful for is influenced by our circumstances. You see that in this thanksgiving as Paul repeatedly goes back to truth. In verse 5, he says, Of this you heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. In verse 6, he continues, Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. He's pointing us to truth. But before we can explore this truth, we've got to understand what truth is. And there's a vast difference between subjective truth and objective truth. Possibly owing to the city of my birth, Dalton, Georgia, the carpet capital of the world, I believe that the most appropriate floor covering for a bedroom is cut pile lush carpet. Just something about when you walk on it in the morning. You may have a different belief. For you, you may believe that the most appropriate floor covering for a bedroom is hardwood. What is subjectively true for me may not be subjectively true for you and vice versa. We can agree to disagree on the subjective truth, but here's the thing that is not subjective. My bed is kept off of the ground by the floor that rests underneath it. And when I wake up in the morning and roll out of the bed, regardless of the floor covering, my feet will rest on the solid floor. It is an objective truth, an objective fact. And guess what? That floor does not really care one bit whether I believe in it or not. It's going to be there, regardless of my subjective beliefs about the floor covering or the floor. Friends, when we talk about truth, 
That is what we are talking about. And sadly, in our day and age, uh, truth is under attack. But guess what? There's nothing new under the sun. You see uh, that attack to truth way back in the Old Testament in Judges. We see it in Colossians. And Paul is telling us that we, when we blend objective truth with subjective philosophies and experience, we are not modifying the truth. We are removing it. So in this Thanksgiving, Paul is telling us, cling to truth. So if that is truth, what is this specific truth that he writes of and thanks the people for clinging to? It's the gospel. Paul speaks of the truth of Jesus. And as he speaks of the truth of Jesus, understand that as he points to the scriptural truth of Jesus, Paul is speaking not to our experience of Jesus. He is speaking to objective fact. That is the way, we've got to capture this, recapture this, that the truth of Jesus as presented in Scripture is objective fact. It is the truth of Jesus recorded in Scripture, attested to by the historical account, and affirmed by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The subjective fact of Jesus is this. Jesus was born. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose from the grave. Jesus presented Himself to the disciples and various crowds in various settings. Jesus ascended to sit at the right hand of God the Father. Jesus sent the Spirit of God in power at Pentecost. And Jesus will come again. This is fact. This is not dependent upon my subjective experience of Jesus, nor the way I perceive Him in culture. This is the truth of Gospel. And it is the truth that Paul speaks of when he commends the Colossians and gives thanks for the way that they have heard and grasped this truth. And friends, if you are here this day and if you have come to hear and grasp this truth, then that is a gift given to you by the Holy Spirit and evidence of a Holy Spirit work in your heart. But just like the floor underneath my bed, the truth of Jesus is not dependent upon your belief in Him. And what I hope you see and hope to explain to you is that, my friends, is good news. Jesus is not sitting in heaven waiting, hoping that we will believe in Him so that our belief will prove His existence. He is fact. He is objective truth. That is good news. The people in Colossae heard it, understood it, and that truth bore fruit in their lives. You see that fruit as Paul continues in his thanksgiving. You see, truth is the foundation of it all. 
But he goes on in verses 4 and 5 to describe this truth. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith, hope, and love. It's a familiar triad that Paul would write of often in his letters. And in his various letters, he will give nuanced emphasis to one of those elements of the triad in various places. So for example, in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, Paul emphasizes love. But here in Colossians 1, in his thanksgiving, he is emphasizing hope. See how he writes of this faith and love. He speaks of the faith and love in such a way that we see they are rooted in hope. It's because of, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Hope here is driving faith and love. So what is this hope? Friends, the Christian hope is not a wish for better things. I hope that we'll get past coronavirus soon. But that hope is not the hope that Paul writes of. He's writing of an objective hope rooted in an objective truth of Christ. And this objective hope, this Settled hope is a hope of eternal, glorious, intimate union with God the Father, Son, and Spirit enjoyed in the presence of the church from across the ages in a redeemed creation where we will worship free of sin, of shame, and of blemish. Praise the Lord. That hope is sure. It is not a wish. It is beautiful. Now imagine. Imagine if that hope that I have just described, imagine if, imagine if it rested on the results of a job interview. Imagine if it rested on uh, how well you deal with the temptation in your life. Imagine if it rested on your goodness relative to that of your neighbor. Imagine if it rested on your obedience relative to the law of God. That would be terrifying. That would not be hope, and it would be worse than a wish. It would be a tease. Because none of us are righteous. No, not one. And if hope is resting on us, or anything in us, then we stand condemned. But the hope that Paul points us to is a hope Rest on Jesus Christ. Praise be to God. The Christian's hope is surety because the gospel is true. Christ died for sinners. 
And the salvation that He has won has been given as a gift of grace received through the instrument of faith. And because it rests on the objective truth of Jesus, it is not in doubt. Because the future reality of our presence with Jesus is certain, our present experience of Jesus is strengthened. That is how Paul describes the faith and the love that he sees within the Colossians as an element of their present experience of Jesus. Their faith and their love is because of the hope that is laid up for them in heaven. Because of the certainty of that hope that is certain because of the truth of Jesus. That's hope. What is faith? Well, we've talked about faith as the, in terms of saving faith. In terms of the, the instrument by which we receive the gift of God's grace. And that faith is a gift given to us by the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. That is one element of faith. That is saving faith. But there is also living faith. Saving faith and living faith are one faith. But there are nuanced differences between the two. We... I hope you hear in this, this triad of faith, hope, and love of an echo of our core values, the core values of our church. When we spell out the core value of faith, we describe it this way. We live in prayerful reliance upon our God under the authority of His Word, joyfully trusting in His sovereign grace and mercy. It's a description of living faith. It's a description of walking with Christ, trusting in Christ, living under the authority of Christ's Word. It's the impact of faith on our lives. So how does hope, rooted in truth, drive our faith? Well, if the certainty of future glory, it, it's, it's trusting in the certainty of future glory that sustains us now which means we don't have to wonder. We don't have to waver. Yet we do. So why do we? Well, let's go back to the objective truth of Jesus. And I'll give you one of many examples of why we might wonder and waver. Do you ever find yourself talking to a friend about Jesus? I hope so. I pray that you do find yourself in those conversations. But when you do, what's going on in your heart? Are you describing Jesus in such a way that your faith is either strengthened or, uh, or, or wavers uh, depending upon their response? you find yourself adjusting the message to try and convince them because you've placed your faith in their response? That's not a faith in truth. That's not a faith in Jesus. It's a faith in someone else's approval. But when I trust in truth, objective truth, the truth of Jesus, rather than the spirit of the age, rather than in worldly wisdom, rather than philosophy 
then I'm freed to simply speak Jesus. To simply speak the truth of Jesus. Free to live in humble reliance upon Him because He is the same Jesus. Whether my friend believes Him or not, just as He is the same Jesus, whether I believe Him or not. And when we begin to place our trust not in our wavering faith, but in the objective fact of Jesus, then we finally find confidence in Him. And in our future with Him. That's love. That's, how, uh, that's faith. That's how faith is rooted in hope. But Paul also speaks of love. And specifically, he speaks of the love for the saints. That is the fellow Christians. How is that love for the saints rooted in hope? Well, let's contrast it with the ways that the world might love. How does the world love? The world loves those who are like them. The world loves those who are easy to love. The world doesn't have a concept of loving those who are difficult, those who are challenging, maybe even those who are disabled, because that takes us getting out of ourselves. And the world doesn't have a concept for its own depravity, and therefore projects on others. The world doesn't have a prospect of future hope. But for the Christian, when that hope is certain, I no longer see someone who is hard to love. Because I no longer see that person as they are. I see them in future glory. Just as I no longer see myself as I currently am, but I see myself in future glory, and I realize that this person whom I, call, whom I'm, whom I am called to love is a co-heir in Christ. We love others in Christ with a love that is rooted in hope because we see our future glory with Christ. The certainty of hope gives us the freedom to love without needing from others. The certainty of future hope gives us the freedom to love even when it's difficult. And so, dear friends, let it be said of us, let us be so rooted in hope that our faith and our love are strengthened. Through his thanksgiving, Paul is pointing us to this truth. But there's another element of thanksgiving that we need to see. We've already said that the thing that we are most thankful for is often rooted in our circumstance. And the thing that we declare our thanksgiving for also carries with it a hint of admonition. But the thing that we are most thankful for also reveals that which we most long for. When MK talked about going to the concert... She loved getting the chance to be with her family and her friends listening to live music. But for MK, there is always this longing for glorious music. 
for music that is in glory. Music and fellowship that we won't enjoy this side of glory. What we long for, or what we are thankful for, points us to what we most long for. It is a faint glimmer of glory. As Paul writes of thanksgiving, as Paul interacts with the threat to truth, as Paul points us to truth, he is doing the same thing and taking what he is thankful for, driving thankfulness in us and pointing us to the one whom we most long for. You see, both in our personal circumstances and in our church circumstances, even in the midst of struggles, even in the midst of the struggles of this year, we have much to be thankful for, yet that thanksgiving points our hearts forward. In the text, Paul is thanking God for the Colossians. It's appropriate for him to thank God because God is the author of truth. God is the, the, the bestower of hope. God is the sustainer of truth. And God is the source of love. And throughout this letter, Paul will show us that Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That in Jesus Christ... The fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. That Jesus Christ stands supreme over all. Jesus is all sufficient. Jesus is the one our hearts most long for. Jesus is the object of our hope. Jesus is truth. So friends, as Paul gives thanks to God for the Colossians, and more specifically what the Colossians have heard and grasped and the fruit that is bearing in them, let it be true of us. Let us remain in Christ. Father, we thank You. We thank You for the work that You are doing in us, a work that we could, cannot, could not ever do ourselves. And we pray that as you root us in the objective truth of Jesus, that you would continue bearing fruit in us through our lives, that we might enjoy you more, that we might experience you more, that we might point others to the truth that is Jesus Christ. Do this we pray in his name. Amen.